to When the Stars Disappear, a podcast that looks to scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness. Our name comes from the story in Acts about the Apostle Paul sailing across the Mediterranean Sea in order to appear before Caesar in Rome. In those days, sailors used the sun, moon, and stars to navigate. But Paul's ship sailed into a storm that blotted out all of heaven's lights, leaving them unsure where they were or what to do. When storms of suffering or doubt overtake us, we can feel like they did. We can feel as if all of the stars that have been guiding us have disappeared, leaving us unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering in the Christian life. The first volume, When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from Stories of Suffering in Scripture, is available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. Today, John and Mark discuss how we can avoid panic in the face of life's worst realities. On this show, we want to jump into a very important question. How can I avoid panic in the face of life's worst realities? Mark, that's a big one. What do you say? It's particularly important, John, given where we got to last time, which is that I argued that Scripture says that Christians should expect suffering. The way that John Stott puts it in his fine commentary on Romans is that ultimately no suffering, no glory. No suffering, no glory. Now, if that doesn't make us panic, I don't know what's going to. I think the way that we avoid panic in the face of life's worst realities is we get prepared for it. We do things like reading this book of mine, which is trying to prepare people for it. We talk to other Christians who have been through the mill. Uh, In some strong sense, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. If we have some idea of what may be coming, then we are more likely to respond better. And then we're not all going to suffer profoundly, and we shouldn't expect that we're all going to suffer profoundly. We're all going to suffer, but we're not all going to suffer profoundly. And if we don't, then we can thank God that we haven't. In an earlier piece of mine, I recounted how Elie Wiesel, the 1986 Nobel Peace Prize winner, struggled to convey in his first book, Night, how his experiences in the Nazi death camps in Birkenau and Auschwitz, initially consumed his pious Jewish faith. He was just a young boy when he went into the camps. And in that first book, he even wrote, Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence that deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Mm. Yet as the years went by, Fiesel died fairly recently. I think he was in his 80s. As the years went by, he realized, as he wrote in an op-ed in the New York Times in 1997, he realized that life was unbearable if it was divorced from God. 
Mm-hmm. And so his faith was resurrected a bit again. In that piece, he actually addresses God as the maker of the universe. And what he says is, uh, we need to make up. Who knows whether or not those are really good words, but they're better than no words at all. You, you realize, Mark, that underneath this, I mean, it's just, you don't have a message that's uh, really good for the marketing guys. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I can be even more shallow than you were, and it's kind of a no pain, no gain at a real, you know, real surface level. You go to no suffering, no glory, but you're still being a prophet that's kind of bringing bad news that, in my opinion, really matches the world a whole lot better and can save people a lot of disillusionment if they start out with the truth. But it's still not a truth that we want to hear. Tell me it's going to be good, not that it's going to be bad. You're telling me it's going to be bad. Thanks, Mark. (laughs) You're right, John. In fact, my reason for writing a book that stresses the suffering that is found in Scripture is precisely that we are less likely to abandon faith or get totally disillusioned with God if we recognize that God has never promised that he is going to keep us from all suffering. Mm. You know, I am reminded of the phrase, um, it takes my breath away. Uh, it's used in so many ways, but uh, for me, in many ways, it's true. Life itself like takes my breath away. When I look at the reality of it, uh, sometimes someone's trying to say, no, 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 this really don't took my breath away. And, and quite often, it's, it, it's not necessarily something wonderful, something terrifying. And there's a part of life that can, can be terrifying and take our breath away. Can, can you talk to me about that? Right. In fact, it seems to me not only what is terrifying, John, but actually what is painful. Pain can take our breath away. And we need to recognize that we are embodied creatures. God did not make us uh, with a soul that is separate from our bodies. We are ensouled or embodied creatures. And so nothing about our experience is just spiritual. Mm-hmm. When I was in the hospital when I was 17, one of the things that struck me was how important even the body's most mundane rhythms are to our feeling normal. If you cannot urinate, if you cannot defecate, your life does not feel normal. This is part of the way that God meant life to be. He meant it to have these rhythms. And in fact, it would have had these rhythms before the fall because we were eating plants before the fall. And that means that we were going to process those plants and there was going to be waste. Uh, when I, uh, in about, oh, I suppose it was 10, 15 years ago, I uh, started going back to a physical therapist, and she'd ask me to do something really difficult. Uh, I would often, in straining to do it, stop breathing, and she would say to me, Mark, breathe. And that's often what we need to hear. Now, significant suffering, especially profound suffering of the catastrophic kind, actually does take our breath away. If you look in the Psalms, you see that there are cases where the psalmist suggests to God that uh, he is drowning 
or that he's suffocating. We have no reason to think those things were happening literally, but that was exactly how they felt emotionally. And it's only then in following the psalmist through and seeing what they do about that, that we have a chance of catching our breath again, which is, in fact, what my third chapter is about, my chapter on breathing lessons. It is, in fact, uh, talking about this rhythm of starting by inhaling God's word to remember what he's done for us in the past, exhaling uh, all of our griefs and sorrows and pains and laments, and inhaling again his promises. Although quite often, the only place we can start is to start by exhaling the pains and the griefs and the hurts to God, and only after that start to breathe in again. You know, I think of two things on the top of my head in my life that um, I, I didn't get. One, the obvious one, is uh, the pregnancy when uh, when <laughs> women are delivering. How much you just had that recurring uh, sound of the of the nurse or the aide to the the mother delivering. Breathe, breathe, and it reminded me. I remember at the time going. This is crazy. Is that the best help you have? And yet, you know, breathe. Yeah. I, and then I remember a time, and it was a church time, when I was a pastor of a church and dealing with stress going on with leadership and conflict in the church. I was so wound up. And I was talking to a seminary professor of mine who stopped me as I talked and said, John, breathe. I mean, three Deep breaths, and I mean right now. I was so embarrassed. I, th I thought I thought I'm going to die, and I literally had to stop. And that's how wound up I was that he, you know he literally needed to tell me to breathe, knowing I would hear nothing if I didn't. If I didn't do now, this how are we shallow or are we deep? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you were right. If you weren't hyperventilating yet, you were right on the verge of it. And what scripture does is it gives us models of ways to avoid the kind of panicky hyperventilation that we can get involved with. The main case I think of, John, is Psalm 22, which is, of course, the psalm that our Lord took on his lips as he was on the cross. I think almost everybody knows that one of the major difficulties of hanging on a cross is that as you hang from your arms, that it tends to make it impossible for you to get a full breath. And what happens is that those on the cross then tend to try to lift themselves up a little with their feet in order to get the space in their lungs to breathe some more. And that no doubt was happening to our Lord. When you look at Psalm 22, you realize that David, in fact, in writing that psalm, was having difficulty breathing. And the way that he then models for us what proper breathing is like. Let me, let me read to you what, in fact, I have in the book on this, because it seems to me that it's really helpful to see the whole model. David first exhales with his plaintive cry, my God, 
My God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Then he inhaled by recalling God's holiness and God's previous deliverance of Israel. Yet, Holy One, you who make your home in the praises of Israel, in you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you rescued them. They called to you for help and they were saved. They never trusted you in vain. David then exhales again, conveying some of the existential horror of his situation by means of an arresting image. Yet, here I am, now more worm than man, scorn of mankind, jest of the people. All who see me jeer at me, they toss their heads and sneer. He relied on the Lord. Let the Lord save him. If the Lord is his friend, let him rescue him. Mm. David inhales then again. He inhales the history of God's goodness to him, which then became the basis for a plea. There's another yet here, another turn as he inhales again. Yet, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. And then he exhales a really vivid raft of images that liken his enemies to dangerous wild animals and that flesh out his psychosomatic reactions with similes of physical dissipation and degradation. My enemies surround me like a herd of bulls. Fierce bulls of Bashan have hemmed me in. Like lions, they open their jaws against me, roaring and tearing into their prey. My life is poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me. And gloat. Now, those images then, John, form the content of his primary plea. He goes on and says, But you, Lord, be not far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me 
from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then the really interesting thing, and this is central to all of the individual laments, the really interesting thing is that right there, in the midst of all this careful breathing, all this inhaling and exhaling, David went from pleading to vowing to praise God and then to actually praising him. Now, before you go there, let me just stop you and say, you know, people ask the question to me sometimes, I don't know how to pray. And yet I just listened to what you said, and here is a man, he is venting. I mean, there's cynicism like crazy in what's going on. There's sarcasm in here. I, I think people say, really, you don't find sarcasm in the Bible. We're talking about David pouring out his heart to God, venting, cynical, angry, skeptical, you know, just, so how do you pray? Talk about pouring out your heart and people are afraid, well, well, I don't want to say the wrong thing. Well, right. David, David's sure processing with God, isn't he? Yes, he is. I'm not sure that I'd use some of the descriptors you've just used. But what I would say is that the descriptors you're using are pointing toward the frankness of the way that David is interacting with God. Eugene Peterson, in a book called Answering God, says that prayer is what is primarily uh, the kind of address we make to God when we're in trouble. And that's obviously what's going on with David here. David is in trouble. And so he is telling God exactly what the trouble is. But as he tells him the trouble, he tells himself, he reminds himself of what God has done in the past for Israel and for himself. And it's that rhythm that keeps this prayer from going off the rails in a bad way. It's almost like he's learning from himself. I mean, as he speaks... I, right? I think I think so. I think as he does, I think that the Holy Spirit is actually prompting him to keep this rhythm up that reminds him of all the goods that God has done and that God has promised. And that's then what leads to the fact that in the midst of all this careful breathing, he goes from pleading to vowing to praise God and then to actually praising him. And so he goes on like this. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. David's perspective at that point has just changed abruptly. For the rest of the psalm, he took his pleas to be answered, focusing on praising God for answering them. And as he does so, his sense of deliverance through God's overruling providence became so strong that it broadened into a prediction. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. 
and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules the nations. In fact, David declared that all mankind would bow before the Lord, and his righteousness would be proclaimed to a people yet unborn. Well, and I'll just ask you, Mark, how does this connect to the New Testament? You just told us about David, but I thought at points I was hearing things straight out of the New Testament. What's that connection? Well, uh, the connection is really, really strong. Psalm 22 is extraordinary in a lot of ways, but it's quite ordinary in this movement from complaint through plea to confident praise. And in fact, we see as our Lord took the first words of the psalm upon his lips on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think we can, we can assume that as he took those lips upon his, as he took those words upon his lips, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had the whole psalm in mind. And so he was reminding himself of the final words of the fact that all mankind, when he had finished his work, would bow before the Lord and that the righteousness that he was winning for us upon the cross would be proclaimed to a people yet unborn. Wow. That's exciting good news and a great way for us to wrap up this session. Look forward to our next time together when we look at some other stories that are so encouraging. Thank you, Mark. Preparing for suffering is one way we can arm ourselves to avoid panic in the face of life's worst realities. But even when suffering comes, we can look to scripture for breathing exercises where we learn to exhale our pain and grief to God and to inhale by remembering his promises and what he has done for us in the past. Mark's conversation partner for this podcast is John Bash, a shepherd with Standing Stone Ministry and host of the radio show and podcast, Church Hurts And. Remember to put in the and when you look for it wherever you listen to podcasts or at churchhurtsand.org. If you found this content helpful, let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you, and your review will also help others find these discussions as well. This is Lauren Susanto on behalf of Mark and John, thanking you for listening to When the Stars Disappear.